0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Downey. And it's getting closer to Halloween, so we're getting a little
0: bit spookier in our series Sarah had a really good pick for today. Well, and this is a popular listener suggestion, too, so it's not exactly my pick. But in the late 1830s, London and its outlying villages, places that are suburbs now, were apparently terrorized by this mystery assailant. And sometimes he was dressed as a bear or a devil or dressed in a coat of armor. And he tormented his victims, who were usually young women, by Tearing at them with sharp talons, sometimes shooting flames at them, and then he would escape with great agility across the countryside.
1: And that agility earned him the name of Springheeled Jack, which was something people eventually began to take literally like he was running around in these shoes with giant springs on the bottom. But he made such an impression on people across the country that Other mystery attacks, 10 years, 40 years, even 70 years later, were chalked up to this spring man who grew even more fantastic as the decades went by. Yeah, and he started to appear in Penny
0: Dreadfuls, which were... The best (laughs) phrase. It makes me so happy. (laughs) It's uh, cheap, lurid fiction, I guess. Which makes me less happy, but... Penny Still, Dreadfuls is the name of our next imaginary would be band. fun to read through. And he took on this folklore persona, too, this wronged aristocrat who was inflicting vigilante justice. And if you look at pictures of Jack from the 19th century engravings, of course, he looks a lot like a proto-Batman. And I'm kind of wondering what sort of inspiration, if any, he had on the creators of Batman. I mean, he's got the scalloped black cloak. He has black boots. He... Flies and jumps. Well, and uh, you and I saw the
1: Batmobile on Monday.
0: Did we did Kathy's see the uh, car
1: collection at Chick Fil A headquarters. So that's so I like to think there's a yeah, connection things here. are coming together. But then Springhill Jack mostly faded from memory. He was replaced by these, you know, more generic ghosts and and boogeymen like we think of. But in 1961, this story kind of gets a second wind when it's used as an example of pre-space age UFO visitation. In a magazine called the Flying Saucer Review. Seriously. Which, you know, I mean, if you want to buy us a subscription for Christmas, <laughs> you totally could. But since the 1980s, the subject of Springheel Jack has been seriously studied by one man in particular who's named Mike
0: Dash. So the legend is obviously huge, but was there ever a real Springheel Jack? And what was he? So just to give you some bearings before we launch into this very mysterious before we spring and spring into, <laughs> into this story uh, our subject today could have been an alien at least according to flying saucer review a supernatural being a nobleman carrying out some sick terms of a bet a series of copycats feeding off of a rural rumor or just an urban legend and Sarah was saying that the
1: cool thing about this story is that even if you walk away from it believing that nothing happened at all, it's still really interesting to take a look at the urban terrors and hysteria in the nineteenth century. Like if you if you think about ours, the the Satanist cults at daycares thing that was going on. Was that in the 90s? I think so. Yeah. We had no Spring-Heeled Jack, but if you were back in England at this
0: particular time... fun to look at weird stuff that happened. Exactly.
1: This is what you would be worried about. But first, we're going to
0: tell you a little bit of a ghost story. So our scene is set February 20th, 1838. It's less than a year into Queen Victoria's reign, and we're at Bearbinder Cottage in Old Ford, which is just east of London. So Jane Alsop, who's a young woman who lives with her parents, hears somebody ringing the bell at her family's front gate. It's a little late for visitors to be calling. It's about a quarter to nine. So she goes out and sees the man and asks him, what's wrong, and could you please stop ringing the bell so loudly?
1: And he says, for God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught Spring Hill Jack here in the lane. So she hurries in, she grabs this candle, and she hands it to the man who thinks... She thinks is a policeman, but that's not what she sees. At that point, he
0: throws off his cloak, holds the candle up to his chest, and it illuminates this horrible face with red eyes and a helmet and tight-fitting white clothing. And then he shoots blue and white flames from his mouth and grabs her starts to tear at her clothes and her skin with his metal claws. And somehow she escapes from him, and she runs to the door of her home. There he grabs her again, keeps on ripping at her hair and tearing at her clothes – Finally, one of her sisters opens the door and saves her. So that sounds completely
1: terrifying, yes. even today. And this is the first first-hand account of Spring Hill Jack, which was published in the Times of London. And the story was followed up by two investigations, one by the newly formed Metropolitan Police and other by a for-hire detective, James Leah,
0: who's considered one of the most famous early detectives. But Jane's account was almost entirely backed up by her family as well as other witnesses. So she was believed to be an entirely credible witness, at least for most of the story. Yeah, someone, I think, was it her cousin who said there was no no was flames? A neighbor, yeah. So the one sort of major contested point, a neighbor said, yeah, I definitely didn't see any flames, even though, you know, I heard someone ringing at the bell. But the rest of the creepiness Everything happened. seemed to add up pretty well. Um, but that's not where our story is going to start. Because months before Jane's attack, rumors of a mystery assailant had already swept through the countryside.
1: And they started in Barnes, a village southwest of London, in September 1837, where a, quote, ghost, imp, or devil was believed to be attacking mostly women. And over the next two months, there were reports from more than two dozen other villages of a similar phantom. So... The story spreads. Of course, it's exaggerated. Maybe it was all made up. Serious newspapermen and police who looked into these tales couldn't find anyone who would actually admit to having seen the assailant. It was more like, oh, my gosh, yes, I've heard, you know, you should go ask Sarah. And then Sarah would if say... Come to me,
0: I'd say, oh, uh, I haven't seen it myself, but... Go see old Joe down the road. (laughs) What about me, Sarah? You could have asked me about the imp. can't send him right back to you, Katie. So it seemed like everybody had heard of this ghost, but nobody had actually seen him. And uh, the other thing, they'd look into some of these accounts, and they'd find that sensational stories had pretty normal-sounding causes. You know, they were seeing a mounted policeman or something. It wasn't spring Jack. But still, it seemed like something had been happening, because by January 1838, the Lord Mayor himself of London made public a letter he had received from, quote, a resident of Peckham, and this was published in the
1: Times. Some individuals of, as the writer believes, the higher ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, name as yet unknown, that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their
0: senses. Okay, so... This is putting forth this wager idea, and sketchy rumors start flying all over the countryside. But possibly something really is going on here. I mean, if the Lord Mayor thinks that it's worth publishing, you never know. The Gentleman in Disguise story seems half plausible. And then in February, we have our first firsthand attack, which is the Jane Alsop story from earlier. Um, In that case, the principal suspect is this carpenter named Milbank, who's a squat man. He doesn't really match the description that Jane gives of her attacker, who's this imposing, enormous fire breather with a helmet. But... Milbank admits to being so drunk at the time that he can't remember what happened. Oh, and Jane <laughs> and her sister are both very adamant that the assailant was not drunk. So, when well, how would he be a fire breather if he was? Well, and that's the other thing. If we're gonna if we're gonna take the fire breathing seriously. It's very dangerous to do fire breathing. If, Period. Unless it's absolute calm. Right. Because if you've got everything under control and you're doing everything correctly. The wind blows the wrong way and your face explodes. It's pretty dangerous. It would be especially dangerous to do while you were drunk. But still now, it is spring-heeled jack fever,
1: and not just in the countryside, but in London, too. So we're going to move on to talk
0: about a couple of attacks. And these are the classic attacks. From, Quote, unquote. Yeah, <laughs> um, a, a short string of events from 1837 to 1838. So the second one was five days after Jane's attack. And again, it was in the east end of London. The assailant knocked on the door of a house. And when a servant boy came to the door to open it, Jack frightened him so much that he started screaming his head off and Jack was forced to get out of there before anybody heard. The
1: third classic attack was when Lucy Scales and her sister were walking home from their brother's butcher shop down Green Dragon Alley, which sounds very Harry Potter. They're ambushed, and the assailant shoots blue flames and then flees. And this story doesn't gain as
0: much attention as Jane's for some reason, but I think it's a pretty good one. Possibly because Lucy was uh, Jane was the daughter of a pretty well off family. Lucy less so. So at this point we enter the copycat stage and you have angry men calling themselves spring you know, just standing up in the bar and saying, I'm Spring heeled Jack and attacking women and boys dressing up as Jack to play pranks on each other. Some men are arrested, but people are also so obsessed by the story by now and frightened frightened of it, that nearly any mystery assault gets added to Jack's rap sheet. So it doesn't matter if it doesn't exactly follow the pattern for what we've, what we've seen. If it's mysterious, it must be Springheeled Jack. When it goes on for
1: years and years, his name is associated with later attacks in the Midlands, in the home counties, in Middlesex, in Peckham and Sheffield, and famously in Aldershot in 1877, which is where a British Army camp was stationed, and that's where he would lay his chill hand over an isolated sentry's face and then bound off on giant springs. So apparently, he's gone from fire breathing to chill hands. Chill hands sounds creepy. But super again, this creepy. is nearly. 40 years later.
0: Yeah, so it's extremely, I mean, I think we can discount that there would be one person carrying out all these ta- attacks. That would be pretty ridiculous. But the last major spring Jack appearance occurs in 1904 in Liverpool. And he's more athletic than ever. I mean, he's practically flying by the point. He has better springs. His <laughs> springs have improved considerably over the decades. And the account of this appearance is really sketchy. I think there had been rumors of a poltergeist in the neighborhood before. So... Everybody's on edge, I guess. So the legend begins
1: to fade away after this. So there's you know, if there's something scary and fishy going on in your village, you're no longer so inclined to blame it on Spring Hill Jack. You might just go with a plain garden variety poltergeist. It's the,
0: ghost. It's the boogeyman, whoever. So what happened? We've gotta look at this from a few different angles. One was Jack just a convenient boogeyman to blame for weird events happening in the nineteenth century. Weird stuff happens. You have this convenient scapegoat. Did opportunistic
1: hoaxers and genuine criminals seize this M.O. of 1837
0: Jack and make this rumor real? So you have all this gossip and then you take on the costume and the prepared crime. you can go do whatever you want. Or did an original Jack terrorize the London area in 1837 and eight before giving way to these lesser copycats over the next few decades? So according to the Oxford Dictionary National Biography, folklorists usually assume that spring Hill Jack was just a combination of two urban legends. And there was one legend among the servants in the working classes, and that was Jack was real he was a supernatural monster. So like he really was the devil or a ghost or whatever appearing in disguises. Among the more educated people, there was a legend that it was a gentleman's wager. And there was this gang of well-off men with access to costumes and transportation and money. And they had made some sort of sick bet with each other to go around and try to Frighten people out of their senses. There was even a suspect for this
1: theory, the very rakish Henry de La Port Beresford, who is the Marquis of Waterford, and he's still regarded by some people as the chief suspect for the original 1837 to 1838 string of attacks because he certainly would have had the resources. And again, it's possible that the lack of concrete information in rural areas from late 1837 comes from some sort of cover up. Cover up the noble one. Maybe the first string of attacks ended because there was pressure put on the police not to investigate any further.
0: Or no, he was just getting, it was getting too risky to keep on doing this. The police couldn't be expected to cover it up anymore. Or he fulfilled his his uh, his bet, that he was all done after those <laughs> classic attacks. Exactly. And the magazine Folklore, unsurprisingly, takes up this same position. I mean, it's called Folklore, after all, um, that Jack was just a rumor and part of this hysterical panic. He shouldn't be associated with any one person because he was a product. He wasn't a real flesh and blood man. But The research of the historian Mike Dash forces us to look at Jack a little more closely and consider a few different angles. He spent most of his working life researching the Jack mystery,
1: and his research has exposed some of the most notable secondary sources on Jack as being nearly complete fiction. So two famous Jack stories—that of the 1837 attack on the servant Polly Hill by a man she recognized as the pop-eyed gentleman who propositioned her earlier in the day—seems made up. And Sarah was saying that was notable because um, rakish Henry Waterford was known for being pop-eyed. And another, the attack and murder of prostitute Maria Davis in 1845, also seems entirely fictional and has no contemporary evidence to back it up.
0: So instead of relying on these obviously questionable secondary sources of literature, Dash has poured through records and newspaper entries from around the country, from not just the Times, but all over the English countryside, even from the U.S., because there are other similar events happening here at the same period in time. So instead of relying completely on some of this obviously sketchy secondary literature, Dash has instead tried to go to the primary sources as much as possible, which in this case, there's some records, but it's mostly newspapers just trying to figure out what the reporting suggests actually happened, and from his research, Dash has concluded that there were elements of reality and fiction in the case of Springheeled Jack, which I think is an interesting way to look at it. So. He's figured that there may have been a few jacks in the first string of attacks from 1837 through 1838. But the attacks on Lucy Scales and Jane Alsop were probably done by the same person. And that person was probably also the same one who was responsible for those mysterious 1837 attacks in the countryside. And after spring 1838, it was probably copycat
1: jacks who were using this ruse to play hoaxes or occasionally to sexually assault women. So there's rumor and panic around this whole thing. But there's also a kernel of truth. So where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, we think. But he also discounts two surprisingly popular theories going back to that UFO idea. Yeah,
0: so he's pretty sure Jack was not a UFO. And he was not a supernatural ghost or devil. And Educated people at the time never really thought he was a ghost or a devil. Um, but over the years, people have claimed that Jack couldn't have been human because his talons, his fire breathing, his jumps would have been out of range for Victorian uh, science It sounds time. so funny to actually say to someone, no, talons, those are beyond Victorian technology. I you know, it, it does sound ridiculous, or fire breathing even. Uh, so Dash has, in his research looking through all the papers, he's figured that jumping doesn't really have enough concrete evidence to back it up. It does seem, as, as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, that people started to take the name spring heel Jack, which was applied to... This a for his July yes. Yeah, they started to take it literally. Like he has actual springs hidden in the heels of his shoes, or. He has India rubber-soled shoes. She would think would make it pretty difficult to get around the
1: countryside, actually. If you
0: were actually wearing springs on your feet, I think it would be very difficult to not just wind up with a broken ankle and caught by the detectives.
1: So if we take the springs out of the equation, you can say that the fire breathing and the talons could easily have been produced in the 1830s. So if he did exist, we should assume that he was at least a man. He was a man, man.
0: yeah. So I think it... It leaves it open to to you guys to think about it a little. You know, do you think he's a combination of an urban legend and some kernel of truth, or is it just an outright folk tale? Uh, I I do like this story because even if you are in the camp that assumes nothing happened, there's nothing real about it. You're forced to still examine the hysteria that's for real. That really did
1: happen. Well, and it's. It's just cool because ideas of of ghosts and things. I remember watching Poltergeist in middle school and being completely terrified. Stories of the supernatural just, I mean, they go back
0: forever. Well, yeah, ghosts like Jack have appeared long before 1837 and 1838. I mean, they just weren't attributed to Spring-Heeled Jack. And weird stuff happens. That we don't have an explanation for sometimes, even now. Yeah. Our science. Sometimes it has a basis in actual weird people. Sometimes it's just folks getting hysterical and worked up about something.
1: But this is of course a story with a lot of research left to be done. Sarah advises that you get out your magnifying glasses and start poring over newspaper archives. But that brings us today to our listener mail.
0: So our first is real mail and it's especially cool because it's made out of an MRE, a meal ready to eat box. Um, Yeah, we saw this Cardboard, Look, cardboard postcard among our letters I was like, what is this it's pretty awesome but it's from Nick and he's in the U.S. Navy and he wrote Dear Katie and Sarah I'm sitting at Fort Jackson this morning not too far from Atlanta waiting for a plane to take me to Kuwait tomorrow and Afghanistan next week I love the podcast and have listened to all the episodes you two have done through the miracle of the Internet, I get to keep listening overseas. It would be great to hear about the history of Afghanistan, maybe Alexander or the Persians or the Silk Road. Thanks and keep up the good work. So, no. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And um, Silk Road, that's definitely one on our list. Darius, that's on our list. So for you, we'll, we'll see what we can we'll do. we them up the list. Yeah, we've <laughs> also got an email today about the Kohi Noor podcast. Yeah, this one is from Jackie, and she wrote, "I just listened to your podcast on the Kohi Noor diamond, and just wanted to mention one instance when the Koei Noor appears in pop culture. I'm a big Doctor Who fan, and yesterday before I listened to the podcast." watched an episode from the new series' second season. The episode, called Tooth and Claw, featured Queen Victoria traveling with Koinor and claimed that the reason Prince Albert had it cut was so it could be used to save the queen from a werewolf. So, that's pretty great. Yeah, I kind of wish we brought that one up. That would have
1: been a nice, solid ending to that podcast. We have
0: found that Queen Victoria ties into everything, and... When we visited Dragon Con this year, we also saw a lot Lots of Doctor, of Doctor Who. Who costumes. Yes, we even saw a Stormtrooper crossed with Doctor Who, so yeah. Doctor Who accessories.
1: Couldn't pick between the two. Well, how could you, really? So if you would like to send us some email, we're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We've also got a Facebook fan page and a Twitter feed at Missed in
0: History. And I think we have an article that would go with that letter, don't we? We do. It's called How Werewolves Work. And it ties into the koh i I think it kind of ties into Spring Hill Deck. Supernatural, yes. So you can search for that on our homepage at
1: www.HowStuffWorks.com.